0: Okay, it's now 3 o'clock, so we can start today's Sutta class. And the Sutta class today is number 118, the Anapanasati Sutta. Even though apparently in 2004 I went through this Sutta, it's a very famous Sutta. And I've uh, talked about it at Bodhinyana Monastery several times. Uh, Apparently it's not on the internet, on the list of Sutta classes which we have done maybe that day. Uh, The internet wasn't on, or maybe at that time we didn't really have it. So somebody, when I was (coughs) overseas recently, they did ask me specifically, the next time I do a sutta class, can I please do the Anapanasati Sutta? And so this is the reason why Anapanasati Sutta today. So here we go. (laughs) Namo tasa bhagavato Allah Hato, Sama, Namo Tasa, bhagavato alahato Allah Sama, Namo Tasa, bhagavato alahato Allah Hato, Sama, Sambodasa so here we go, Nyanapanasati Sutta, The Mindfulness of Breathing, uh, one of the basic meditation teachings uh, in the Pali Canon. <clears throat> Thus have I heard on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Sawati in the Eastern Park in the palace of Migāra's mother. And if you don't know the story of the palace of Migawa's mother, that was Wisaka. Wisaka was called Migara's mother because Migara was her husband. And <coughs> on one occasion, as is written in the Vinaya, that uh, Wisaka was uh, about to go to a huge party and had incredible amounts of jewelry on her and uh, decided on the spur of the moment to go and hear a teaching of the Buddha. And because she was so decked out in so much um, ornaments, Uh, She decided it's not appropriate to go and see the Buddha dressed like that. So she took off all her jewellery, put it aside in a bag and just uh, went to see the Buddha. And she was so inspired by what the Buddha um, taught that she went away just basically with Dhamma twinkling in her eyes and forgot all about her bag of jewellery. And Ananda happened to find the bag and because it was worth so much he asked the Buddha, what should we do? Monks aren't allowed to handle money or expensive jewelry. And the Buddha said, if it's something which is lost in your monastery, or you know, in this vihara here, or it's, uh, you're visiting a house and somebody loses it there, then monks are allowed to pick up that money or those valuables to put it aside for the owner, so that uh, later on the monks won't be accused of stealing. You know, because sometimes you may lose something when you're here and you think, every time Ajahn Brahm is here, I lose something, I can't find it. <laughs> so you know what happens. So that if you do lose anything here, even if it's like uh, your wor- your, pol- uh, your wallet or your purse, that's one occasion I am allowed to pick it up and put it aside for you. And so uh, Ananda went and put it aside and when Migara, when sort of Isaka found that, she said, oh my goodness, my jewellery has been touched by a monk, therefore I can't wear it anymore. She was so faithful. And she said, what should I do? She said, okay, look um, I donate my jewellery to you. But then Ananda said, well I can't wear jewellery. He said, no, I donate it to you and I'll buy it from you. So <coughs> she brought the jewellery back from the Sangha and by doing that she said, "And how I'll buy it back, I will build a monastery for you. And so that's where they got this uh, palace of Wisaka. She was called Migara's mother, even though Migara was her husband, because when she got married, her husband Migara was not at all uh, Buddhist, didn't like her giving alms, and so forbade her from giving alms to the monks. And so Migara, sorry, Wisaka, she had to obey her husband, but she could also teach her husband. So for those of you, uh, who have husbands who don't like you coming to the temple, or they don't allow you to do good things, you can use you know, these wonderful little methods like Wisaka did. She went around to her friends and said, oh, in my house we only eat old food. We only eat old food. Just the food we eat is all old stuff. And of course that gets round to her husband, and when her husband Megara heard that, what do you mean telling people you only eat old food? Our maids buy it fresh every day. And... Uh, That's when she had the opportunity. I wasn't referring to the rice and curries. I was referring to the karma. We only eat old karma. Our wealth, our prosperity, our health is because of the old karma we've done in the past. We're not making any new one. So we're only making use of all the old karma. We're not making good karma now. That's why we're only eating old food. And (laughs) her husband, Megara, understood. said, I've got a very clever wife. And so from that time on, she allowed, he allowed his wife to actually to give dana to go to the temple and he went himself and uh, he was so respectful uh, of his wife, he said, you're like my mother in the Dhamma, even though you're my wife in life, in the real world, in Dhamma you're like my mother, you taught me, thank you so much. And so that was why Wisaka was given the name Migara's mother, her husband's mother. And that's the story, where they got the palace from. And, uh, I often quote this because sometimes people expect monks and nuns just to sit down, meditate, and never do any work. But having uh, taken her jewelry back and said, look, what it's worth, she quoted a figure, this is roughly what it's worth, please build a monastery for that amount. And she said, I wanted Mahamogalana, who was the Buddha's, uh, one of the Buddha's chief disciples, can he be in charge of the building? So Maha Moggallana was in charge of the building work for this Migara, uh, palace of Megara's mother. And uh, for those of you who know your suttas, Maha Moggallana was the chief of those who have psychic powers. His psychic powers were immense. And so in the Vinaya they say that that building was, was completed very, very quickly. <laughs> And imagine if you had psychic powers, you don't need to lay the bricks, just put the brick over there. <laughs> Lift up the roof. <laughs> they don't actually say that, but it's, it's implied. Because he was in charge of the building, it didn't take as long as you, buildings usually take. And that was one of the great monasteries where the Buddha would live. So that's the story of Megara's mother's palace, which is Megara Mother Wisaka. And that was just next to the Jeta Grove. Uh, no one actually knows where it is now. Whenever you go on pilgrimage you can't find any ruins. No one has actually identified where this uh, monastery where the Buddha spent a lot of time actually was located. But anyway the Buddha was staying in there uh, together with many very well-known elder disciples Sariputta, Mahamogalana, Mahakasapa, Mahakachana, Mahakotita, Mahakapina, the Venerable Mahachunda, Anuruddha, the Venerable Revata, the Venerable Ananda and other well-known elder disciples. Now, on that occasion, the elder bhikkhus had been teaching and instructing new bhikkhus. Some elder bhikkhus had been teaching and instructing 10, some had been instructing 20, 30, 40 monks. And the new monks, taught and instructed by the elder bhikkhus, had achieved successive stages of high distinction. On that occasion, the Uposatha day means the full moon day of the 15th on the full moon night of the Pawana ceremony. And the Pawarana ceremony is the last day of the rain's retreat, the Wasta the panza. So this next year, I was looking the other day, it's, something like it's October the 20th or 21st or something. That's a full moon day which marks the end of the rain's retreat. So the full moon day of October. So that's the end of the retreat. The, uh, the great monks have been teaching all this time and how the rain's retreat was over. The Blessed One was sitting in the open, surrounded by the Sangha of Bhikkhus, and then surveying the silent Sangha of Bhikkhus, he addressed them thus. Bhikkhus, I am content with this progress. My mind is content with this progress. So arouse still more energy to attain the unattained, to achieve the unachieved, to realize the unrealized. I shall wait here at Sarvati for the Kamudu full moon of the fourth month, which meant another month. The so full moon of November, he would stay in English. So because everyone was getting some good results from their meditation, he said, let's all stay for another month to see if we can get further. And then the monks of the countryside heard the Blessed One will wait there at Sawati for the Kamudu full moon of the fourth month. And those monks of the countryside left in due course for Sawati to see the Blessed One. So the ones in the outlying areas also came in and elder monks still more, more intensively taught and instructed new monks. Some elder monks taught and instructed 10 monks, some elder monks instructed 20, 30, 40 monks, and the new monks taught and instructed by the elder bhikkhus achieved successive stages of high distinction. On that occasion, the Apostle Day of the 15th, the full moon night of the Komudu full moon of the fourth month, the Blessed One was seated in the open, surrounded by the Sangha of monks, Then surveying the silent sangha of the monks, he addressed them thus. Monks, this assembly is free from prattle. This assembly is free from chatter. It consists purely of heartwood. It's a great little saying there, just a pause. Sometimes when people are talking too much and they just prattle useless talk, it means there's no real heart to their practice. Such is the sangha of bhikkhus. such is this assembly. Such an assembly as is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation, an incomparable field of merit for the world. Such is this sangha of bhikkhus, such as this assembly. Such an assembly that a small gift to it becomes great, and a great gift greater, such as this sangha of bhikkhus, you know, which is always uh, the idea of making merit. Good uh, gifts to a good sangha means that you get... Uh, a lot of karmic reward and I mentioned this just in passing that the gift given to a sangha is always much greater than the gift given to an individual so don't give gifts to monk, a monk or a nun, give it to the sangha in other words uh, through the, the BSWA when it gets to the sangha but not to an individual. Such an assembly is rare for the world to see such is this sangha of monks, such as this assembly such an assembly as would be worth journeying many leagues with a travel bag to see, such as the sangha of bhikkhus, such as this assembly. In this sangha of monks, there are monks who are arahats with the taints destroyed, who have lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached their own go- goal, destroyed the fetters of being, and are completely liberated through final knowledge. Such monks are there in the Sangha bhikkhus. So this is the way they always describe the arahat, fully enlightened. The taints destroyed. That word taints, called asawas, uh, the, mean, the meaning of that word can be one of two things, say outflowings or inflowings. Uh, no one can actually find out from the uh, construction of that word which one it means. It has both meanings. But I always prefer the idea of outflowings with the idea that uh, if your mind is kept inside, then that's peace, that's stillness, that's the way to uh, wisdom and enlightenment. But when your mind goes outside, when it flows outside, that's when you get caught up in the world, when you lose your tranquility, when you don't have an opportunity of seeing uh, what's inside of you and uh, finding out the Dhamma. So I like the word outflowings, which is my preferred translation to the taints the monks who are arahats with outflowings destroyed who have lived the holy life in other words you've done uh, the job which is what they say now done what had to be done when you become a monk or a nun you have a job to do even you may say when you become a buddhist you have a job to do it's entering a training and that training is complete when the outflowings are destroyed you've done what needed to be done lay down the burden now what's a burden? The burden is this body and mind. Sometimes we may think this body is not a burden but a beautiful thing which we own and could look after. But when you get to the age of most of us here, especially Ainsley whose 80th birthday it is today, I wonder not you forget that, then he will agree that the body is actually a burden. <laughs> and it would be wonderful to lay it down. <laughs> and also the mind with all its thought and all its problems is also a bit of a burden. So lay that one down as well and you've laid down the burden, reached their own goal, destroyed the fetters of being and are completely liberated through final knowledge. The fetters of being. These are the fetters which keep you being, instead of disappearing. Such such monks there are in this Sangha of monks. Now that's the Arahat and there's also the next uh, level of enlightenment, one below, In the Sangha of monks, there are monks who, with the destruction of the five lower fetters, are due to reappear spontaneously in the pure abodes, and there attain nibbana without ever returning from that world. Such monks are there in this Sangha of monks. So that's the Anagamis. There are four stages of enlightenment, which you should probably all know by now. The Stream Winner, the Once Returner, the Non-Returner, and the Full Enlightened Arahat. So this is number three, the Non-Returner. The five lower fetters are, as many of you would know, uh, the idea that there's a self, there's a Sakaya ditti, the doubt in the teachings of uh, Buddha or the Dhamma, and uh, the idea that rites and rituals will be the path to get you to enlightenment. And those are the first three fetters which were abandoned by the stream winner. And there uh, is the desire for this five sense world and the uh, irritation or anger which sometimes comes up, always joined together with desire. When it gets frustrated, then it always have anger in your will. Those are the fourth and fifth fetters. When they are lessened, one is a once-returner. When they are completely abandoned, then one is a non-returner. So they say the five lower fetters are totally gone. And that means one is a non-returner. The five fetters which still remain for the non-returner are rupa raga and arupa raga, which is basically the delight and attachment to the experiences of the jhanas and the arupa states. So yes, you can get attached to the jhanas, but if you are attached to the jhanas, that is a fetter which only stops you becoming an arahat, you still become an anagami. And many of you will be quite satisfied by becoming a non-returner in this lifetime. So it's not one of those fetters which is really so important at most people's stage. And the other one is conceit. All again doing with the self-view, I am better, I am worse, I am the same. It's all with an I at the beginning, which is comparing yourself. Thinking there's somebody in here which can be compared to somebody else. That's mana and the udaccha is the restlessness and the uh, last bit of delusion. One thinks that somehow or other there's still a sense of self in there. And those are the last five fetters. Those five fetters, when they're destroyed, then one is a full Arahant. And in this Sangha of monks, uh, are those with the destruction of the three fetters, who in the attenuation of lust, hate, and delusion are once returning, returning only once to this world to make an end of suffering. Such monks are there in this Sangha of monks. So, the question I asked to make sure you understand this uh, paragraph 11 if you're a once returner, how many more lives do you have at the end of this one? How many more existences? Once yeah, once returner. So how many more lifetimes have you got uh, when this one finishes? Seven. No, this is a once returner. One. How many more do you have? Two! You die, then you go up to a heaven realm, they say usually the 2 realm, and then you come back to this realm. So you've got two more existences, you only come back once here. So you go on holiday to the Tusita realm, basically, have a nice time there. and Then you come back here. So once returners, once returners, only come back to this realm, once. Yes? Yes, come back here. So it's, it's, uh, and on this one suit, I don't know where it actually is, but I remember reading a long time ago, where it says that once returners, for the most part, that's way it's translated, get reborn in the Tusita realm. Then they come back here to make their last birth. And do you know one special person who went to the Tusita realm and then came back to this realm and had his last birth? Yes. So that's one of the reasons I say, was the Lord Buddha once-returner before this life? Tusita? Tusita realm is a very high heaven realm, having a good time. I mean, it means, it's, Tusita is like contentment. The realm of contentment, where contentment is your happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. It's not necessarily you can actually basically at the end of your life um, become an arahat. You are once returned in this life, and at the end of the life, you may just uh, take that last step and become fully enlightened, or maybe in the two realm. I'll come back, okay, yeah, this is an interesting one. If you become a once-returner, say, in well, say the Tushita realm, in the Tushita realm, and there you become a once-returner, then what happens? More likely finishes in the heaven realm, because if you get to the heaven realm, because it's such a light body, it's very hard to have that attachment to the body. So if you can let that go, there's a good chance that you can, um, you can disappear in the Tushita realm or in any other heaven realms. But you're talking about the monks or the lay people, the nuns or whatever who are once returners in this realm. Then being a once returner means up in the heaven realm and then back down again. That's why, again, trick question. I love trick questions. There's another trick question coming soon. How many more lifetimes does a sotapanna have? But you can think about that in a moment. Um, yes, Danya. Um, I was wondering, okay, I have to pass the microphone
1: around. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you know how the arahat was described in many different ways like ending of craving ending of greed, hatred and delusion ending of the asawas and I'm just a little bit um, I would like to know more are they all exactly the same thing or what information well they wouldn't be because they're using different words what information is given extra H- how, how do we understand the arahat and what's being ended in terms of Craving, Asawa, greed,
0: hatred and delusion all that. Ok, it's for all Arahats greed, hatred and delusion is always ended. For all Arahats craving is ended. For all Arahats the sense of self, conceit, me and I is totally ended. The only distinction between two types of Arahats are those who um, became an Arahat by going through the Arupa states or uh, just with the jhanas. I guess I
1: was wondering if craving and asavas were the same, because it seems Ye- to be.
0: Craving is, uh, is one expression of the sense of self. When there is a sense of me, there is always going to be a sense of mine. When there is a sense of mine, there will be a sense of craving. Wanted to own and protect what you think are yours. And uh, that will also give a sense of the mind going out there into the world. To protect and look after your assets, whether they are uh, houses, whether they are monasteries, whether they're your body, or whether it's your, um, uh, whatever it is you think you are, the mind will always go out. Always coming from a sense of existence of me and the self. Where there's a self, said the Buddha, there you'll find things belonging to you.
1: Yeah, the lay down the burden. Would you translate the poly of that the same way? Because I'm, s- I'm yes, I would. That's a very good. Yeah?
0: Because it's an idea that this uh, body and mind, things like the will, are burdens. They're not something which you cherish. It's like something which you you carry around with you. You go shopping, and when you finish the shopping, it's such a relief to put the bags down sit in a nice armchair at home and have a cup of tea. You've laid down the burden. And I've used those similes as many people do, to know past and future is a burden. The two suitcases, you put them down. Thinking is a burden, you put it down. The body is a burden, it disappears in the jhanas. The will is a burden, you let it go and then there's stillness. Consciousness is a burden, it disappears freedom at last. But remember these things we don't think of as burdens, we think of as our prime possessions, it's who we are. Therefore we own and crave them. Okay. Yes.
2: This on this paragraph, then, on this, non is, is, does it appear in this script or somebody just add it in? You know I mean?
0: No, it's not in this script. It's called the Sudhawasa. The Sudhawasa is you know, from the earliest times of the Buddha, describing the realm in which non-returners get uh, reborn into. You can't actually say reborn, because they uh, reappear in, is the word they use. Because in all of the heavenly realms, especially in the Sudawasa, you don't just be a baby and have to go to school again in these realms. You know, you appear in a mature body. Mm.
2: Is it alright to elaborate
0: more in it because we are actually on this... On the Sudha it's not...
2: Because they, they, yeah. it's been mentioned as five, five, five levels.
0: The five levels of the Sudha So how, how are you going
2: to... Uh, I, I am it, trying it to relate yeah.
0: it to It is not so much the different realms of existence, but the times one stays there. That sort of is where they talk about the five different types of... Uh They say there's, there's one. I think if I get these correctly, as soon as as soon as one dies, then one gets full enlightenment straight away. That's the fastest one, or on the way in the antarabawa, in the in between, that one becomes an anagami. Uh, the simile they use is a very evocative one. They say somebody strikes a hot piece of metal, and a spark comes off that piece of metal. It either goes out immediately or halfway up before it falls on the ground, it goes out, or as it reaches the ground it falls out. So the third type is when a person who, as soon as they appear in the Sudawasa, they become fully enlightened. They let go enough. So they actually get to the enlightenment, they get put their foot on the ground, but then they disappear straight away. So their time in the Sudawasa is zero. Or then they're in the Sudawasa for a short time, and they say, just like uh, it creates a small fire, the spark, but then it soon goes out. It's got not, en- not enough heat to keep the fire going for long. So they just stay in the Sudhawasa for a short time. And the last one, they stay in the Sudawasa for a long time. And that's all it is, the amount of time you yeah. spend there.
2: Uh, I, I understand why you're explaining It's the same realm. you explaining it now? Yeah. But if you read the. Uh, any of the sutta, they always put the last one, you stream upstream all the way to a Akanita, right? And they put it as under pure or broke. It doesn't quite... No, indeed. It doesn't deal with what you explain. here. Right?
0: Yes, indeed. indeed. Uh, but what the... Uh, there is also another type of anagami, which is, you can see that when one gets the very, very high states of mind, sometimes is another way of looking at it and that is what they call the jhana anagamis. So if you're a stream winner and get into a jhana, uh, you know, you've been in jhanas for many times and at the end of your life you enter a jhana realm, then that is your last realm of existence. And when that jhana disappears, then you're you're gone. That's uh, another way of looking at it. But the main pseudo uh, is where a person, actually they live there. The only thing which they have, you know, they still have a sense of self. Only a very minor sense of self. Uh, just like I think uh, they said, like a, a flower has a scent. But you know they don't actually, they it's a lingering sense of self. When that disappears, then they disappear.
2: Can I just finish? Yeah, Just do yeah. five, five point. If I agree to mm. all you're saying. Yeah. Then, how, how could
0: I understand... Um, um, I'm very yeah, no, 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 okay.
2: Um, how, how are you going to understand uh, this explanation of... First, okay, what is Akanita rhyme? What is the definition of that? Ah,
0: that I'm not sure of, but uh, it's translating it. It's just a name uh, which they give uh, to. Um, that particular, not really a realm, but that particular type of anagami.
2: Okay, I accept we use the word janagam. Jana, yeah. Janagam. Okay, I accept. Yeah. Okay, I drop this now. Now, what's the other final point is this how then. Um, I, I think
0: I, I, just, I just. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you, you know, just sometimes you call them maybe, if it was in English, you may just, you know, like a, a speedy anagami. And it's a medium anagami, a slow anagami. So,
2: do it. Okay, I, I got what I wanted to ask. Yeah. We don't have to be so fixed with this five level then. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I honestly think, think that if. Just you know, if we want to appreciate the Angura, Nikaya, or the. I just stick on these three main sutta. If I drop this five level it's much more appreciative of what's going on with all the
0: sutta. Really. It can be, because those five levels, they're not. There's not a like a line between one and the other, because they merge together. It's just you know whether a person's heavy or whether they're light or whether they're average. You know, where is that cut-off point between being average and being heavy? It's very arbitrary where we draw lines. You know fast, slow, medium. Where's the difference between medium and and uh, and fast?
2: I'm, uh, uh, okay, I agree yeah. I don't meet the level, but yeah. I also agree with what you say. That there is a, a different a, a distinction, there's a slight distinction because of the five for cup. Cal- yes, for cal- that's cal- right, yes. I understand okay.
0: that, okay. Okay, okay, very good. And now the stream winners. There are, in number 12, in this angle of bhikkhus, there are bhikkhus who with the destruction of the three fetters are stream winners, no longer subject to perdition, it means they can't get reborn in the lower realm, bound for deliverance, headed for enlightenment, they have to become enlightened, it's coming soon. Such monks are there in the sangha of monks. Now the trick question is, once you're a stream winner, how many more existences can you have at most? Six. Aha! <laughs> Thank you for asking, you're very brave, but you know it's always a trick question, so the obvious one is wrong. You have six more existences. Because this one is counted as a seventh. This is the Asian tradition. When you are born, you're one. And at your first birthday, you're two. So they always count this. To, you know, they say in three days' time, it means this day, the next day, and the day after. That's three. So always count this as one. So <laughs> in this life is number one. The one you have now. So if you become a stream when you've got six more existence, six more births. Seven more deaths, okay. So that's what it means. Sorry I'm just being so tricky, but thank you for asking. Uh, Having the guts to put your hand up and ask a question. So in this Sangha of monks, there are monks who abide devoted to development of the four foundations of mindfulness. Such monks are there in this Sangha of monks. In this Sangha of monks are those because who abide devoted to development of the four kinds of striving. The four bases of spiritual power, the five faculties, the five powers, the seven enlightenment factors, such because are there in a Sangha of monks. Those are the bodhipakyas. In this Sangha of monks are monks who are abiding, devoted to the development of loving kindness, of compassion, of altruistic joy, of equanimity. Those are the four Bambriharas on the meditation of foulness, on the perception of impermanence, such monks are there in the sangha of monks. In the sangha of monks, are the bhikkhus who abide, devoted to the development of the mindfulness of breathing. So that's the introduction. Now we get to the heart of the sutta. <laughs> so sometimes introduction is sometimes interesting. But uh, that was the whole point of just getting in to the mindfulness of breathing bit. So here we go. Monks... When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is of great fruit and great benefit. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. When the four foundations of mindfulness are developed and cultivated, they fulfill the seven enlightenment factors. When the seven enlightenment factors are developed and cultivated, they fulfill true knowledge and deliverance. In other words, being fully enlightened. So you can see A leads to B, B leads to C, C leads to D, D leads to E. In other words, A leads to E. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it fulfills true knowledge and deliverance, what the Buddha is saying there. But it's also, I would uh, make a sort of a point here, because sometimes people keep on saying, developing the four foundations of mindfulness is vipassana, and mindfulness of breathing is samatha. Of course, you know know that my views on that is that that is uh, uh, wrong. And I often quote this particular sutta here, where it says, when mindfulness breathing is developed and cultivated, it fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. So the anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing, is fulfilling the four satipatthanas. So it's not samatha or vipassana, it is both. Mindfulness of breathing fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness, which people keep saying is vipassana. So mindfulness of breathing, which is a samatha practice, also fulfills vipassana. So there's two always together. So, now, this is just the way the Buddha introduces his um, uh, sermon. He says exactly what he's going to explain, and now he explains it. And how amongst this mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and benefit? And so here we have the basic instructions. And afterwards, where the Buddha describes how mindfulness of be- breathing fulfills the four Satipatthana, we get some more information. So the first part here, I'm going to go through reasonably quickly. And then when we analyze this in terms of the four foundations of mindfulness, we get some much more information. But first of all, the preliminaries. Here a monk, and of course everybody could do anapana study. They only mention monk here because this is a recording of a talk where the Buddha was teaching just monks. So here, because I'm teaching uh, members of the lay community, I'm going to put here a meditator. Here a meditator, gone to the forest or the root of a tree or an empty hut. Empty hut, I don't like that um, uh, translation. I just call it secluded place. Not a physical hut, but just a place of seclusion and quiet. So first of all, you go to a quiet place. Yes, it is possible to meditate uh, in Hay Street Mao, which is a very busy part of Perth, but you need to have had a lot of training first of all. It is much easier to start your meditation practice in a quiet place. You have enough problems as it is, without trying to to deal with all the noise and other stuff going on around you. So you go to a quiet place, having folded your legs cross-wide, set his body erect and establish mindfulness in front of you. Ever mindfully breathe in, mindfully breathe out. What on earth does it mean, mindfulness in front of you? It's it's one thing which I learned a long time ago, and I thought that means, well my nose is in front of me, because I'm a Western, I think I live in my head. So if you ask a person in the West where are they, they say in here. They ask a person in the old days in Asia, they say in here. So if they understood that uh, in Asia, 20, 30, 40 years ago, they put mindfulness here somewhere because that's where they thought they were. But because we're Westerners, we think we live in our head, therefore mindfulness in front of us, oh that must be my nose. So they start watching the tip of their nose. And if you try watching the breath at the tip of the nose, as I've said in many of my meditation retreats, and to make the point I usually take my glasses off, when you're meditating, you have your eyelids closed. I'm now going to meditate on the tip of my nose with my eyes open. And please watch my eyeballs. Because when I meditate on the tip of my nose, you find yourself going cross-eyed. Because whatever your mind watches, your eyes tend to follow. So <laughs> and this is so true. If you meditate, for those over there, And if you watch the tip of the nose, you've got your eyes closed, you don't realise it, your eyeballs are actually looking at the tip of the nose too, therefore you get headache. And so many people meditating, doing breath meditation get headache because of that. So that's not what it means. It's pura kata. It can mean sort of putting in front, but there is a similar English word, which is giving priority, prioritising, which means Literally it means putting it in front, not physically, but putting it in front metaphorically. Making it the most important thing, giving it priority, putting it number one on your list. Not in front of you physically, but putting it in front metaphorically. And that's what it means. And that's my understanding of this. And that takes away a lot of problems in doing mindfulness of breathing. So I'd actually translate this, uh, giving mindfulness priority. And then mindfully breathe in, mindfully breathe out. Because, and this is not in the Sutta, this is my commentary on it, too often when people try to do mindfulness of breathing, they can't succeed because they haven't done the preparation. They go straight on to mindfulness of breath, and the only way they can uh, maintain awareness is through too much force. They haven't prepared enough. So those first um, number seventeen—that's just so important. And people just rush through that. They sit down, cross their legs, body erect, establish mindfulness in front of them, and off they go in a few seconds. And in all the years I've been teaching meditation, that is a great hindrance to the success in mindfulness of breathing. You spend a long time just folding your legs crosswise, getting it comfortable, getting your body erect, making your body comfortable. We spend a long time doing that, looking after your body, keeping it tranquil. A long time establishing mindfulness as a priority. It doesn't come easy because you're restless. Many years ago, this is just personal anecdotes, when I started teaching meditation, Ajahn Chakro, who I respect a lot, the first abbot of this place, he said to me, he gave me some really good advice. He said, Ajahn Brahm, you're really good at teaching meditation once people can watch their breath. But a lot of us, we can't even get to that stage yet. So can you please put more attention on the beginnings of meditation? And don't focus on all of the, the, the you know, of nimittas and jhanas so much. And I took that advice on board. And That's where you started to develop. Establishing mindfulness, what does that mean? And understanding that mindfulness is always in the present moment. So if you have past and future, you aren't mindful. If you are thinking, you're not mindful. You're not aware. And you know my simile, is actually from Lao Tzu. If you think or say, that what a beautiful sunset. You're not watching the sunset anymore, you're watching the words. Even thinking, what a beautiful sunset. You're not watching sunset anymore, you're watching the words, the description. Not the thing. Which is why, to be really mindful, you have to be in the moment and silent. Otherwise you're not really mindful. That's a tough call, but it's important. Which is why, in all the meditations I've taught, I spent a huge amount of time relaxing the body, getting the mind in the present moment and then being silent so you can really be mindful. You're aware of what's going on now. You can't be aware of the future, that's fantasy. Even the past, your memories are never accurate. Your memory of what you think happened in the past, not of the past. The past is no longer real and any thought, It's just a label, a description. It's not the real thing. Which is why to establish mindfulness in front of you is a hard task. It's a priority. Which is why you all know if you can establish that mindfulness properly, the rest of Anapanasati flows very easily. Without establishing mindfulness, you find it's always a struggle. It doesn't work. So I've paused. and. That paragraph 17 is crucial to a success. And then you can mindfully breathe in and breathe out. It's there, it's easy to watch. Because you're in the present moment, you're silent, you have mindfulness. You're not forcing, it; you're not faking it. Now from there, paragraph 18. Breathing in long, he understands. I breathe in long, breathing out long they understand I breathe out long. Breathing in short, she understands I breathe in short. or Breathing out short, she understands I breathe out short. Always have these uh, he or she's, I'm going to change them around. Uh, Those are the first two of the 16 stages. And next, I breathe out. Sh- no, he trains or she trains us. I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body of breath. He trains us. I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body of breath. She trains us. I shall breathe in, tranquilizing the bodily formation. He tra- trains that. I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the bodily formation. And uh, you may notice if you've had a, a close look at this Sutta, for those four exercises: uh, breathing in long, breathing out long. You understand it's a long breath. Breathing in short, out short, you understand it's a short breath. Uh, experiencing the whole body, the breath. You, uh, and ex- tranquilizing the body formation, those four steps. You may notice the first two, they say you understand, you know, you realize. And the last two, you train. And that's an important point there, because the first two you just know. You don't train yourself to breathe in long. You don't train yourself to breathe in short. It becomes a natural breath. Because training means, okay, now I have to breathe in a long breath. So you do it by will, or you breathe in short. That's not what it means here. It means whatever breath you're doing, long, short, or sometimes in between, you just know, you understand. How long your breath is, or how short it is. All this is doing is giving your awareness a little task to do so it makes it interesting, so your awareness can be established more effectively on the feeling of the breath. So, you just know, long breath or short breath. It doesn't have to. You don't have to sort of breathe in long first of all. Yes, I breathe in long, I've done that one. Now I can go into stage two and breathe in short. That's not what it means. It's just you know. So you don't have to do one or two, one and then two. You can do either or in between. Breathing the middle breath. Yes, Dania. Okay, where's the microphone? Poor old Hugh. <laughs> <laughs> <Has to> Exercise. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I'm wondering why the translated that word. As trained. So maybe could you tell us maybe the Pali word and if it's if that word is used in the same context, in different parts, in different suttas? Yes, it's it it's, it's a very common
0: word, mm-hmm. you know, it's you know, to know is just pajanati, so that's a very easy one. It just means to know the long breath or the short breath. In other words, you're clear about how long the breath is. <coughs> mm-hmm. With the training, it's just the training of being a monk, the training of being a nun. You know, It's sikati. Uh, in fact, that, that word became the word for the Sikhs. You know, The trainers, the ones who develop themselves. Exactly the same word. And so uh, it just means the training, the development, the cultivation. That's really what it means. So it doesn't mean like you train in the army, where you've got a training sergeant who drills you this and drills you that. It's not a drill. It's another type of training, development, cultivation. Uh, You know, uh, you're a caretaker of Jaina Grove, you're always hanging around Bodhinyana. you know the way I train the Sangha. That's the way you train your mind. (laughs) So I can give that as a personal answer, but people who listen to this may not understand that. So it's not a training with force. There's many ways of training. The training through inspiration is the best. So the first two of those, uh, the first four um, of Anapanasati, the first four steps in paragraph 18, you just know you're breathing in long or short. Either one will do. Now the third of these always creates controversy. And uh, there's in controversy in the different versions of the Sutta too. I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body. You train that, I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body. Of breath is in... Is in um, parenthesis there because all it says is whole body, and this is where that even today many monks, many meditation teachers have arguments. Does this mean your physical body, or does it mean the other thing of the body of the breath? And you know, I am very firm in the second of those alternatives not feeling the whole body, but feeling the body of the breath you're focusing, you're becoming still, other things are disappearing. Your body is supposed to be coming tranquil to disappear. So, in this particular case, um, I understand that particular um, step of anapanasati uh, as being aware of the whole part of the breath. Uh, for example, I'm now going to watch my finger from going, this is for you going to the right, to the left, the opposite for me, i am seeing the whole movement of my finger from right to left. Now I'm going to watch the finger from left to right. That's watching the whole body of the movement of the, the finger. If I'm watching it and then miss a bit of it, that's not the whole body. The body means an accumulation of things. In court, a body of evidence, a body of soldier, a body of truth. That word in English is exactly the same as the word in Pali, kaya. It's, they even have like manukaya, the body of mind, or even kaya, the body of dhamma. It's a word which just doesn't mean a physical body like a form. It does mean just an accumulation of many things becomes a body, like a body of truth. The way that word is used in English is exactly the way it's used in Pali. Because English and Pali, they both have roots in the same sort of uh, Indo-Aryan uh, group of languages. The words are used in the same way. So it's, if it was referring to a whole body while you're watching the breath, that becomes just too diverse, not focused at all. Having to be aware of your whole body as well as the breathing never ever made any sense to me. But later on, you'll see that this is confirmed, that this does mean the body of the breath, nothing else. So where we have the parenthesis there, step three of Anapanasati, I shall breathe in, experience the whole body of breath. Bhikkhu Bodhi has interpreted that right. And I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body of breath. So from the very beginning of the in-breath, the middle of the in-breath, the whole process of feelings of one in-breath, the whole process of feelings of one out-breath, You see the whole lot. And lastly, stage four, I shall breathe in tranquilizing the bodily formation. He trains us, I shall breathe out tranquilizing the bodily formation. If it did really mean the body, then it's best to take some Valium or something. And then you would be able to, if it's really meant the body, you would be able to tranquilize the body that way more effectively. But that's not what it means. It means like, You can watch the breath going in, going out, the whole of it and then you make it calm and peaceful. The feeling of the breath becomes more soft, more easy, more relaxed. You're tranquilizing it, softening it, settling it down. Any questions so far? Now you can train yourself that. But remember the training is not something like a drill sergeant. A lot of those times the training happens when you understand the causes of things and you understand the cause leads to an effect. So if you want to get the effect, put the causes into place. And of course the way that this actually works is not to say, now I will go on to stage four. Now I will tranquilize the breath. If you do that, you will find the breath does not get tranquil, it gets more rough and more coarse. As many of you may know, many times when you try and watch the breath, it is coarse. When you leave it alone, you're not even trying to watch it, it's very, very um, comfortable. Every time you try and do something, like watching it, you disturb it. So it's the skill of being able to be aware without interfering with it at all. That is what tranquilizes the breath. In other words, Make peace, be kind and be gentle. That is a way of tranquilizing your breath. Trying to tranquilize it makes it more rough. This This is a training. Yeah, it's putting mindfulness as a priority. Establishing mindfulness first of all as your first task. No. Mm. No, you don't have it in front of you. That is again a word which because it can mean many things and they chose the wrong meaning of the word, it confuses people. You don't even think of a space. So you don't think mindfulness has to be over there somewhere or in the park over there. No, just make it the most important thing. Priority as a a metaphor, not in space, but metaphorically. (laughs) uh, Dani, do you have a question?
1: I was just, um, maybe this is a a silly question, but I noticed the Buddha usually uses the words um, to describe the goal, so he tranquilizes, as in the goal is to tranquilize, but I find the teaching so much more better, like you mentioned, so much more useful when we are taught the causes, like letting go, relaxing. And I was always, usually puzzled by in the suttas w- why more emphasis or more of what we read is placed on the goal rather than all these descriptive words on how to get there. Okay, it's just that?
0: elsewhere the Buddha taught about you know the the, the causes, the path. But you know, we always do have to know where we're, where it's leading to, so we want to have like a very soft, peaceful, calm breath. And so you can call it we're tranquilizing the breath. Fair enough, but how does that calm, peaceful breath emerge? What's necessary for it? And uh, you know, you always know that if you try to do things, you never achieve anything except you disturb the breath. But if you can just make peace, be kind, be gentle, just let it happen by itself you find that that is what works and a lot of training is again for most of you is by trial and error. Many of you have been trying for years and years to be able to watch the breath and get the breath to be calm and you use force and then you know, you don't get anywhere but then you know, sometimes you just give up, oh, just what the hell, I can't do this and the breath becomes peaceful all by itself. This is the trial and error training. OK, you may have a good teacher who tells you, stop putting forth effort, don't do these things. But, you know, people are, are stubborn, you know, you never follow the teacher totally. <laughs> you always do it your own way, which is great, because that way you make many mistakes, but that's where you get your wisdom from, you learn what not to do. The wisdom of the wrong path is very important later on in life. So this is actually how you do that, and afterwards, the breath is tranquil. It's calm, it's peaceful. And then why? because you let it be peaceful. So on each one of these, the training, well actually you find this out later on, the training is not just to achieve the goal of having a tranquil breath, it's to find out why the breath becomes tranquil. And that's even more important, to find out why, what you have to not do, than actually getting a tranquil breath itself. You're learning to let go, get rid of your sense of self, stop trying to control things. So a lot of these times it's not just the getting the, the stage, it's how the stage is achieved. That's where you get your insight from. Yes, uh, over here. Yeah, okay, yeah. All those ones who ask lots of questions, go and sit together, please. <laughs> John, if you want to ask a question, could you go and sit over here? Because <laughs> I feel... S- <laughs> yeah, go on. I'm is that the part where you find the right balance between be and do? Is it's that the very part? <coughs> it's uh, the balance between be and do is not a balance at all because being is doing, doing is being. It's both of those should be abandoned because when you stop doing things, you just disappear, which is what's supposed to happen. So this is actually the first tetrad. You train yourself, and so you get a very calm and peaceful breath. That's level four, if you like. Now you get. It always gets much more interesting now. Nineteen. You train us. I shall breathe in, experiencing rapture. You train us. I shall breathe out, experiencing rapture. You train us. I'll breathe in, experiencing pleasure. You train us. I shall breathe out, experiencing pleasure. You train. us, I shall breathe out, experiencing the mental formation. You train us. I shall breathe out, experiencing the mental formation. You train us, I shall breathe in, tranquilizing the mental formation. You train us, I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the mental formation. Steps five, six, seven, eight. And five and six. I shall breathe out, in and out, experiencing rapture and pleasure. Oh, what joy. At last, it's a spiritual practice which you can enjoy and have fun with. Because so often, people in religion, it's so boring, it's being told you're going to go to hell. <laughs> And It's just all the things wrong with you and stuff like that and at last you can have a really good time. And I emphasize this. Look, the Buddha said you're supposed to develop pleasure, you're supposed to develop um, rapture. And too often people say, no, don't do that, you'll get attached. But the Buddha says, do it. (laughs) So this is important, this is what happens. So you've got a very calm breath and you train yourself, find out the causes. For this beautiful pleasure and happiness to develop. And in all the times I've been teaching meditation, it's so difficult to make a distinction between those two the pleasure and the rapture, the pity and the sukha. But it doesn't need to make a distinction. You're breathing in, having a wonderful time. Mm-hmm. And how you train this, it just happens quite naturally. You don't have to do anything, you let go. The breath becomes so peaceful. The way this works, the cause and effect of this is when you are tranquil and peaceful, when you're not doing things, the energy of the mind, instead of going into activity like doing, choosing, controlling, that energy is freed to go into knowing, into mindfulness. You not only become more aware, but the awareness becomes full of joy and happiness. You're empowering mindfulness. And this is quite common in meditation retreats, that mindfulness is empowered, it gets stronger and stronger, And whatever you look at looks more beautiful. You find more joy in. I can't, the joke, it's not a joke, it's a true story, but people find it funny, I don't know why they find this funny. But once at Jana Grove, I had a very nice meditation, really a lot of bliss and happiness, but you had to go to the toilet because you know, you're know you a human being. So I went to the toilet at Jana Grove and when I went to the toilet there, I just happened to look at the toilet bowl afterwards. And I'd never in my whole life seen such a beautiful piece of shit on there. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> It's absolutely true. I've told this story many times. People laugh, but it's actually, I'm not exaggerating, the different colours of browns. Have you ever actually looked at what's in the toilet bowl? It's incredible, just the shades and the way they all come together. And you know, the fragrance of there was just so delicious, so rich and full and earthy. <laughs> <laughs> now this is what happens and this is quite normal and natural. That you know, if you have a strong mind, everything looks beautiful, everything is fragrant. And If that's what a piece of shit looks like, imagine you go outside and seeing the grass or seeing a flower, or seeing a tree. It's incredibly beautiful. And This is why your breath starts to look beautiful. It's just natural when your mindfulness gets to a certain level, because you're not doing things, the energy goes into mind, you can see much more, it's incredibly amazing what's going on in there. Just one breath. So, this is the stage of meditation, of sitting there, eyes closed, having the time of your life, really happy. And the measure of that happiness, so people understand what I'm talking about, is when on a retreat it's your lunchtime, and you're keeping eight precepts, there's no meal in the afternoon or evening, no midnight snacks. You're having such a lovely time. And you know that if you don't get up now, there will be no lunch for you, no more to eat. And you just know. It's no contest, you carry on meditating. The joy of the meditation is much greater than wanting to eat. You just carry on. Yeah, Ok, I don't care, I'm not going to eat today, who cares? And that gives you an, in, uh, an understanding of the joy of meditation. That usually happens when I teach retreats. It's usually one or two people miss their lunch. and You see them there just happily meditating. And they don't mind missing the lunch, having a good time. And that's the sort of pleasure which comes up. So what are you aware of now? You're aware of the breath, but I call it the beautiful, the delightful breath. Just so lovely, so delightful with Piti Sukha. And then you experience the the mental formation and you uh, tranquilize the mental formation. What you're realising now is that what you are watching is not the physical breath anymore. It's the way the mind experiences the breath. Remember we have six senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching and knowing, the mind sense. And a lot of times we experience these things through our body sense. You know, we feel and then we sort of we know we felt. But In this case, the uh, physical feeling, also the, the sense of touch is just so subdued that what we're really doing, this is a mental formation, sort of a, an, a, an object of the mind that this is actually what we're feeling. The breath in a new way, a mental breath. Sometimes you know what happens, that the breath disappears for people. And sometimes they say, what am I supposed to watch? The breath hasn't disappeared. You are just seeing it through a new sense. Through the mind sense, not through the body sense. So just because you're experiencing it in a new way, Sometimes you don't recognise it. So if ever your breath disappears, especially after it's been so delightful and so beautiful, you're experiencing something. What are you experiencing? You're not unconscious. And after a while you will recognise that what you're experiencing when the breath disappears is actually the the mental breath. How the mind knows the breath. It takes a while for you to recognise that. And then you tranquilize that. In other words, you've settled it down. Those are the four next stages, tranquilizing the pleasure of the breath. Any comments on that? Now we get even more interesting stuff. Okay. Yes, Nicholas, before we get to the more interesting stuff. Does every, um, does every uh, physical perception, like a sensation or any other physical perception, does that all have a mental... Uh, formation behind formation everything has a mental formation which comes after it not behi- well behind it in the sense of after it i like to say after it in time but in this particular case it's the um, the physical feeling is disappearing so this is more like the mental feeling it is a vedana associated with the sixth sense rather than the vedana associated with the fifth sense Jim, like other sense activities don't
1: um, form the basis for this kind of meditation.
0: Okay, this again the other way of looking at breath meditation. Training yourself is not doing it. Training yourself is letting it go so it happens by itself. And this is again, you've heard me teach meditation so often. This is the most effective way of doing anapanasati. Seeing they're doing nothing and just seeing one stage evolve to the next stage. So you don't say, I'm on stage four, now I'm going to move on to stage five. Uh, A very important uh, way of looking at Anapanasati is the next stage is right within the stage you're in now. Sometimes I gave the simile of the Russian dolls where you open up the doll and inside is a perfect replica, a little bit smaller inside. You open up that one, there's another doll inside that one. You've all seen that little toy which was uh, uh, specifically Russian and uh, using that simile that the next stage is inside the one you're in now. So the stage of uh, experiencing happiness is inside experiencing rapture. The stage of experiencing the mental formation is right inside experiencing the pleasure. Uh, Tranquilizing the mental formation is right inside experiencing the mental formation. So you never go on to the next stage. You stay where you are, settle down in that stage, and see it evolve into the deeper stage. So this is not what you do. It's what happens when you stop doing things.
1: So John, with a sense like hearing, um, why is it that
0: that's not a basis for getting... Uh-huh. Into because with the breath, the hearing you don't have to hear. Sometimes it's not sound around you. Sometimes it is quiet. But the breath is always there until you die. So it's always something which you can focus on. And as I mentioned that when you do this a, a natural way, when everything else settles down, there's no, nothing to hear, the body is uh, relaxed and tranquil, your eyes are closed, there's nothing to smell, nothing to taste. The only thing which is moving is your breath. That is why I got this from again, Ajahn Chakra years ago where we had that uh, example of the sensory deprivation chamber, which came to Perth 30 years ago, you know that story. Somebody came to uh, Magnolia Street in Nonamara, Lynn may remember this, she was there at the time. And they said, we've just got a sensory deprivation chamber, these little um, capsules, you put salt water in, it's a room, it's a body temperature, and it's, you float in it so you can't feel any sort of aches and pains, you're suspended in this salty water. It's at room temperature, no, you don't feel cold, you don't feel hot, you don't feel anything at all. And it's uh, airtight, it must, can't be airtight, it must be, have some oxygen going in there, but soundproof, totally dark, so to turn off all your senses. And they said, would you like to have a go? And I was really interested to meditate in one of those, but of course seniority, Ajahn Chakra had to go in there first. And after he went in it, the next day it was in the newspapers advertising the sensory deprivation chamber as used by Buddhist monks. (laughs) (laughs) They conned us. (laughs) They invited us to go in there so they could use it as an advert. And so I never got to go in it. I was really disappointed. (laughs) But whatever, I asked him, what was it like in there? And he said, "Eh, air was so quiet in there except the sound of my breath. And because nothing else was going on there, that became so prominent. And you see, this is what happens. You know that everything else can disappear, but you're always breathing. So that's why the sound of the breath, you know, you have to learn how to calm that down to get into deep meditation. If all the other sounds disappear, the breath will be next. So you have to calm the breath down to allow the five senses and the body to disappear. Which is the other way of looking at anapanasati. The breath is a stepping stone from the world of the five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching to the world of the mind, which is coming next in number nine. Twenty. He trains us, or the meditator trains us. I shall breathe in experiencing the mind, the chitta. I shall breathe out experiencing the chitta. That's number nine. You train us. I shall breathe in and out gladdening the chitta. I shall breathe in and out, not concentrating the jitta. that's a mādhāng. You know that I really thought that was the most uh, misleading word, stilling the mind. And trains us, I shall breathe in and out, liberating the jitta. So what is this? This, the breath has got so calm, you've tranquilized it. So it disappears, vanished. And that's the last of the five senses, gone. So now all you've got left is the sixth sense, the mind. So if you do this properly, at this stage, you should not be able to hear, you may be able to hear, but it's just not distracting you. It's not seeing, not smelling, not tasting, body vanished with the breath. The breath's gone, and that's the last part of your body gone. And you experience the jitter, the mind. How do you do that? What is actually happening there? This is when you see the Jitta Nimitta, the sign of the mind. This is when you see the beautiful light come in the mind. That is the Jitta. It is radiant. As it says elsewhere, I did write this down somewhere. That's right, in Anguttara 5, Sutta number 23, when the. uh, What's it called? The hindrances disappear. The chitta is pabasara. It is radiant. Or in the Bhajanvasangyta, again it says the same thing. The chitta without the five hindrances is pabasara, the radiant mind. And this is what you see. Your mind is radiant, this beautiful ball of light. Radiant. Gorgeous. It's a nimitta, a light. And as I keep telling people, if you don't see that nimitta when you are meditating, you certainly will see it when you die. You look at all those people with near-death experiences, yeah, they float out of their body and then they go towards the light. That nimitta is what you see in meditation before you're dead. And so it's much safer. So when you're dead, I can't come along and say, I told you so. That's much better. You see that nimitta now, and then I can come along and say, See, see, this is what it is. So you see beautiful light in the mind, which is very common in meditation. And this is what it means. That's what the chitta is. Personally, it took me a long time to understand what's going on. Uh, should have really asked Ajahn Chah, but my time may be not good enough. But then you see this beautiful light in the mind, and I thought, What the hell is that? And then you look at this, you say, oh, this is what it is a Prabhasa Rajitta. This is just the way you experience the mind. And that can be very brilliant. And I mention this because sometimes people get scared. See, it can be so brilliant, especially your five hindrances have totally disappeared. It's so brilliant that sometimes you think, my goodness, I can't stand such a light. I will go blind. I had that experience. Many other people have those experiences You think you can't stand such brilliance. Please, you're not seeing this with your eyes. It's a mental image. You can take as much as you like. You never go blind. Yeah, it's, I'm wearing glasses, but it's not because I've seen too many limiters, OK? <laughs> <laughs> That's not the reason why. <laughs> it's just, um, it can be incredibly pleasurable as well, which is what's supposed to happen as I'm going to say this next. So this nimitta appears in your mind when the five senses disappear. And this is what happens. The first two is to, to the first eight stages of anapanasati is to be able to focus on the breath. Body, you can't feel. Beautiful rapture, happiness allows the breath to totally vanish, and you're left with the mind. And so you experience the jitta, the nimitta, and then you breathe in, gladdening the mind and Settling or stilling the mind, gladdening the mind means just making it. It's actually sampasadanang. Uh, it's giving it just more joy, and it's also more confidence as well. This is a word in Pali means not just um, uh, gladdening. It's just the same way you may be glad with these teachings. You get more confidence and faith in them. It do means joy together with trust. It's you know, this Pali word, joy and trust. You get joy and trust in this nimitta. So you know when you trust it, you, know, you don't try and mess around with it, you join it, you ju- like hanging out there, you, so it means it it's more likely to stay, and it becomes more beautiful. And the next one is stilling it. <laughs> when many people have nimiters, like when I first had limiters they were moving all over the place. They're not still, or they, people have amazing nimiters twirling around, spinning, doing all sorts of stuff. that's not very still. So somehow you're going to find a way so it actually stops moving, and it just stays there and gets brighter and more brilliant. And the great simile which I came up with was that the mind limiter, the light, only moves because I move. I think what happened, I was sh- you know, having some nice meditation and had to shave in the morning like men have to do. And I was shaving and noticing the image in the mirror was moving. And I realised the image in the mirror is moving because I'm moving. And it is a light bulb came on in my mind. Yeah, that's what nimittas are like. The nimittas in front of me moves because I'm moving. The observer, the one which is watching, is moving. So instead of trying to stop the nimittas moving, I made sure the one who was watching was more still. When the one who was watching was still, the nimittas, the jitter, became still. And that was a a trick, which is a nice way of looking at it and hopefully will help you. Then the nimittas is still it's samatha Chitang. what it has here is concentrating but it doesn't mean concentrating means stilling the mind yeah just just breathing
2: the 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 white really yeah. get if you get excited yeah you just remember your simile it you just fix the fix it up and yeah good the rest of the past just happens itself and i think I'm always grateful for you, because this is your brilliant simile. Very good. You. Of course, there are many others. But yeah. this is a really
0: a very... It's helped you, yeah. Simile. Excellent. Well done. Thank you for that. Yes. Over there. Okay, I've got, I got two people running. Oh, good. One on each side. Very good.
2: Sometimes I see uh, images. Some, some of them are quite scary. Some, sometimes I see very pleasant images, like images of Buddha and so on. Would it be
0: the imagination, my imagination, or could it be the work of Mara? Yeah, no, it's the imagination, this idea in the West of having imagination. Imagination is as real as anything else. Imagination means it's a mental image, a mental object. So never actually think, oh, this this is imagination, it is real. Now the thing is, what do you do with this? If it's an ugly, frightening image, you can turn it into something beautiful. The uh, skillful means is, if every image, you've got sort of the negative side of it, the scary side, but you've always, always got a beautiful side. Every, every uh, monster has a twinkle in his eye, <laughs> or they've got sort of a gold tooth or something. You just go to something in that image which is not negative, which is positive. And if you can do that, then you just go to say the sparkle in the monster's eye, Then that sparkle just comes up and it's a huge beautiful limiter, a positive one. So you always actually have this ability. To have an image and just to go for the most beautiful, pure part of it. And I mention that because uh, some people have got negative characters. They always look for the faults and what's wrong with themselves and in life. And they have a difficult time with nimittas because they always see what's wrong with the nimitta rather than what's right with it. If you go to what's right with it, the beautiful part of it, it's just so easy to get incredible, wonderful nimittas. The (laughs) story was that... uh, I did mention with the chitter when it comes up, it's very beautiful if you've lived a pure life. But if you've you know, been messing around a bit, you know, not sort of keeping your precepts or whatever it is, then when a nimitta comes up it's always a little bit dirty, like it's stained, like a, a cloth which should have been washed. And When I first said that, this poor guy came up and he was just so upset because I got a nimitta and it just was like a dirty old rag. I said, yeah, what have you been doing? He said, exactly, Ajahn I'm sorry. He'd be naughty. I said, look, okay the best thing is to keep precepts and be a good person and you know, don't do things wrong. But there is a trick. You know, Because I'm a good meditator I know all the loopholes. So The loophole is that even if you've got a dirty limiter, there would be one part of it which is cleaner than the rest. You know, like you've got a dirty rag, a dirty cloth. There's one part which is you know, not dirty. Focus on that part. And what happens is the nice part becomes bigger. And it squashes all the rest or moves all the rest out of your field of mental vision. And then that cleaner part, there's a part of the cleaner part which is even cleaner than the rest. Go to that. And by using that little method, you know, soon all the dirty stuff just falls off the radar. And the most beautiful, beautiful, the most beautiful of the beautiful of the beautiful of the beautiful comes up, and then you've got a wonderful limiter. Which is actually how it works. So yeah, so you know, we've all made mistakes in life, so don't focus on them. Focus on the beautiful stuff you've done, and that really works when you get to these limiter stages. You focus on the most beautiful part of the limiter, and it really is wonderful. Okay, um, Danny, do you have to go to your class soon? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I'll g- give that. Come over here and give it to me, and put it over here. They have to go to a class. So, okay. Have a nice class. Very good. Okay, and so that's actually how you tranquilize, sorry, how you um uh gladden the mind, you brighten it up, you shine it up, and that's how you make it still. And what happens next? The great one of number twelve. And I shall breathe in, liberating the mind. And the liberating the mind is liberating it from the five senses completely. Even when you've got nimittas, maybe you can hear a little bit of sound in the background. Maybe you can feel, very rare to feel the body. But you know, if you do, it's like a thousand miles away. And then you liberate the mind. So the mind is totally free from the five senses and the body. Otherwise known as the jhanas. This is uh, the wimocha uh, uh, Chittang is the Pali for this 12 stage. Vimocha means freedom, the vimokas, the that's the noun which is associated with the verb. The vimokas are jhanas, this is what happens, this is the 12 stage means you enter jhana. So this is actually how it all works. You start off with just noticing long or short breath, and then from there, you um, experience just the hold of the breath, and so nothing else you experience. Then you calm it down, it becomes beautiful breath, have lots of happiness, the breath starts to disappear, beautiful Nimatas come up in the mind, you still them, tranquilize them, and then usually experience which most people describe, how it happens, you either fall into that nimata or the just expands, and you're in this incredible realm of the first jhanas. So liberating the mind, the twelfth, is experiencing the jhanas. And you come out of the jhanas. What happens? Then you train us. I shall breathe in, contemplating impermanence, and breathe out, contemplating impermanence, breathe in and out, contemplating things fading away. You breathe in and out, contemplating cessation, breathing in and out, contemplating relinquishment. The ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th stages of Anapanasati. And what that really means impermanence does not mean things rising and falling. Sometimes people think impermanence means watching a lake and seeing the waves go up and the waves go down. That is called superficial impermanence, anicca. The real impermanence is when you're watching the lake, waves go up, waves go down, and suddenly the whole lake disappears together with the sky above it and the mountains surrounding it. That is impermanence. So these are not ordinary experiences you're going to get here, after the jhanas. These are mind-blowing. Things which stop delusion, blow it apart. Big experiences which make you uh, gobsmacked, I think is the word. Or <laughs> one word. <laughs> and that's what anicca means. In Pali, this language of this the sutras, they have something called Nietzsche food. Nietzsche food means you come to the temple every Monday, or every Tuesday, or every Wednesday. You're a regular donor coming once a week. Like some of you go to the monk's monastery every Monday, or you go to the monk's monastery every Saturday or whatever. That's called Nietzsche. Things which are regular, always there, always around. Anichia means things which are regular stop, they disappear things which are always there, gone, vanished. That's interesting. So contemplating Anicca means you just come out of a jhana. My God, there's been things that have disappeared there which were always there, now they're gone. And it's a simile from this, is where I got the simile of the tadpole and the frog. Tadpole lived in water all its life, never understand water, even though studied water, Even went to university and found out the water was H2O. that tadpole can never understand what water is, no more than a fish can. But one day little tadpole grew little legs and little feet, and little arms, sorry, and little tadpole became a frog. And one day she didn't know really what she was up to, but she jumped out of the water. And my goodness, that's anicha. Something which has always been there has disappeared. Water. Only now, and Mrs. Frog understand what water is. That amazing thing, which has always been there since she was born, now vanished. In jhana your body is gone. And your five senses. If you think you understand what your body is, you don't. You think you do. Even if you're a doctor, you don't. When it totally disappears, now you understand. Five senses have always been there for you. You don't understand. Second jhana, the will. Anita. Something that was always been there for you, now vanished. That's called anicha. Fading away. You see that things again disappearing. In the jhanas, what fades away is your consciousness. Vanishes stage by stage. I was trying to find a great simile. The only one I've ever found was from Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland, where She saw the Cheshire Cat and the Cheshire Cat suddenly appeared, then vanished, then appeared, then vanished. And Alice said, No, you've come and go so fast, you are giving me a headache. And so the Cheshire Cat, being compassionate, said okay, I'll vanish slowly for you. And then the Cheshire Cat, first its tail disappeared, then its legs, then its body, leaving only its head. And then its ears disappeared, then its whiskers, and then its whole head disappeared, leaving only its mouth, and then its mouth disappeared, leaving only the smile. And Alice said, I've often seen a cat without a smile, but never before have I seen a smile without a cat. (laughs) A very brilliant piece of English. And I think I remember that last part accurately. But (laughs) the, uh, the idea of things fading away and vanishing, that's what we're seeing here, seeing our body and mind vanish. And what have we got next? and cease, and after vanishing, we see things actually end. things which aren't supposed to end, which we think are permanent here forever, ceasing. and lastly, relinquishing is just letting things go. So that's what we focus on, and sometimes. People ask, well, after you've got out of these jhanas and these stages, should you do these stages? You don't do anything. This is just what happens. you just had this huge experience of anapanasati, and you just can't stop. What the hell was that? You see all these things. Monks, that is how, or meditators, how mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, so it is a great fruit and great benefit. And how does it fulfill the four foundations of Mindfulness. Gives a bit more information on what these stages are. Monks or meditators, on whatever occasion a monk breathing in long understands I breathe in long, out long understands I breathe out long, uh, breathing in short understands I breathe in short, breathing out short understands breathe out short, or trains us breathing in, breathing out, experiencing the whole body of the breath, or trains us uh, breathing in and out, tranquilizing the body formation. On those occasions, A monk abides contemplating the body. Ardent, fully aware and mindfulness, having put away covetous and grief for the world. That's the standard Satipatthana. I say that this breath is a certain body among the bodies, namely in-breathing and out-breathing. So it's actually saying that this is what body means, the in-breath and the out-breath. That is why on that occasion a monk abides contemplating the body. Ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetous and grief for the world. First of all, the body as a body, as many of you know, doesn't mean that at all, it just means contemplating the body. This is just an idiom of Pali. It just contemplates the body. Uh, having put away covetousness and grief for the world, that is a euphemism, and even the commentaries agree with this, putting away the five hindrances. So the real, um, if anyone was actually, uh, was accurate, I would say, this occasion a monk or a meditator abides contemplating the body, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away the five hindrances 25 on whatever occasion a meditator trains us I shall breathe in experience breathe in and out experiencing rapture breathe in and out experiencing pleasure breathe in and out experience the mental formation and breathing in and out tranquilizing the mental formation these are pleasure this is the main object there it's the delightful breath not the breath which is delightful but the delightful breath it's the delight the happiness which you experience which is A Vedana, it's the feeling. That's why uh, I say that this is a certain feeling among the feelings. Among all the things which are Vedana, the pleasure, the joy of the beautiful, delightful breath, that is the Vedana. Uh, That is why on that occasion, sorry, a certain feeling among the feelings, not even giving close attention to the in and out breathing. That is why on that occasion a monk or meditator abides contemplating feelings, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away the five hindrances. 26. On whatever occasion a meditator trains us, I shall breathe in and out experiencing the jitter. I shall breathe in and out gladdening the jitter. I, I shall breathe in and out stilling the jitter. I shall breathe in and out liberating the jitter. On that occasion a meditator buys contemplating the mind. Obviously this is the mind, this is the first time you actually see the mind, the jitter ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away the five hindrances. Now, this is one of the strange sayings. I do not say that there is a development of mindfulness of breathing for one who is forgetful, who is not fully aware. That is why on that occasion, a monk abides contemplating the mind, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away uh, the five hindrances. If you look at that, that doesn't really make too much sense at all. Now, I do not say the development of mindfulness of breathing for one who is forgetful and not fully aware. That's obvious. But fortunately, this version in the, uh, the argamas doesn't have that. All it says is, he gives attention to the mind. So he says that this is just giving attention to the mind. So I think this, I'm not quite sure where this came from, but it doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't make sense. I've never heard anyone give a good explanation of this but when you go into the, the Chinese versions of this it does make sense so I usually follow the Chinese uh, the Chinese version there and just say uh, so instead of saying I do not say there is a development of mindfulness of breathing for one who is forgetful who is not fully aware I just say I call this giving attention to the mind and lastly 27, on whatever occasion a meditator trains us, I shall breathe uh, in and out contemplating impermanence, breathe in and out contemplating uh, fading away, breathe in and out contemplating cessation, breathe in and out contemplating relinquishment. On that occasion, a meditator abides contemplating mind objects, as mind objects, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away the five hindrances. Having seen with wisdom the abandoning of five hindrances, they closely look on with equanimity. That is why on that occasion a monk abides contemplating mind-objects ardent, fully aware and mindful having put away the five hindrances. What the Buddha is saying here is on this occasion uh, having uh, abandoned the five hindrances, only then can one look on with equanimity of these things without um, adding anything to the truth of what's happening. Because if one wants to see anicca if one wants to see fading away uh, cessation, relinquishing, we have to let go of what we want to see, which is like where craving comes in. When we have craving, the first hindrance of des- sensory desire, we see what we want to see. When we have the second hindrances of ill will, we're in denial to things we don't like to see. Now, the anger, we don't like to see things which stop our anger. When we have restlessness, again, we're not still enough to see things. When we have sloth and torpor, the fourth hindrance, we're not uh, clear enough to see things. When we doubt, we keep thinking so much, we can't see things. So when the five hindrances are overcome, only then can we see the truth of things. So he said, having abandoned the five hindrances through the jhanas, then you can contemplate these things, you can contemplate the mind objects, because you're clear with equanimity neither adding nor subtracting to what you see. Ok, the fulfilment of the seven enlightenment factors. Please forgive me for going quite fast on this but we've already gone over time and just uh, the main part has been completed. And how monks do the foundations of mindfulness developed and cultivate to fulfil the seven enlightenment factors? Monks, on whatever occasion a meditator abides contemplating the body ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away the five hindrances. On that occasion, unremitting mindfulness is established in them. On whatever occasion, unremitting mindfulness is established in a meditator. On that occasion, the mindfulness, enlightenment factor, is aroused and they developed it and by development it comes to fulfillment. So that's the first enlightenment factor of mindfulness. Abiding thus mindful, they investigate and examine that state with wisdom and embark upon a full inquiry into it. On whatever occasion, abiding thus mindful, a meditator investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. On that occasion, the investigation of states, the Dumbawitchia, enlightenment factors aroused in them and they develop it and development comes to fulfillment. Now remember, this is mindfulness and when you're mindful, you see things. The uh, investigation is not thinking about things. It's having it in front of your mind, the mind still, no um, uh, likes or dislikes, you know, the first two hindrances, still seeing and after a while you understand it, you penetrate it. You don't penetrate truth by thinking. You penetrate truth by seeing, experiencing. Abiding thus mindful, the investigate... Oh, in one who investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it, tireless energy is aroused. On whatever occasion, tireless energy is aroused on them. and a meditator investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it, on that occasion the energy enlightenment factor is aroused in them. And they develop it and by development it comes fulfillment in them. The energy, when the mind is still, it gets energized. So you're watching the thing with still mind, you're not thinking about it, you're not doing anything, you're just watching it, the energy starts to build. You're experiencing that. High energy comes from stillness. As Ajahn Chah used to say, if you want a strong, energetic body, exercise it. If you want a strong, energetic mind, keep it still. The words of Ajahn Chah. In one who has aroused energy, unworldly rapture arises. They call it unworldly because it's nothing to do with craving. On whatever occasion unworldly rapture arises in a meditator who's aroused energy, on that occasion the rapture Enlightenment factors aroused in them and they develop it and by development it comes to fulfillment in them. This is when the mind is very still. Not only can you see things very clearly, but the stillness creates more energy and that energy creates happiness. As I say, you look at a lump of shit and it's the most beautiful thing, you get ra- enraptured by something like that. Imagine how enraptured you get by something which is you no know, worldly nice. In one who is enraptured... The body and the mind become tranquil. indeed, I was looking at that piece of shit for minutes. I was very tranquil. <laughs> but the body and mind become tranquil. All the body and mind become tranquil is the body tranquillity means it basically vanishes. It's not a burden anymore. It's really weird in meditation. I'm getting old now. You get aches and pains, itches and stuff like that. But you get into deep meditation. all that sort of vanishes. You can't feel the body anymore. At last, it's settled and tranquil. You can sit for hours. It's what a wonderful thing that is to be able to have a way of overcoming the aches and pains in the body. <laughs> That's called the tranquility because you're rapturous. The body and the mind become tranquil. On whatever occasion the body and the mind become tranquil in a meditator who is rapturous, on that occasion the tranquility and enlightenment factor is aroused in them and they develop it and development comes to fulfillment in them. In one who's body is tranquil and feels pleasure in the mind, the mind becomes still. This is really important, keep the body so, so quiet so it disappears. The mind, pleasurable, that's where you get stillness, not concentration, stillness. Important point, only through pleasure, through joy does the mind become still, not through pain. So one whose body is tranquil, feels pleasure, the mind becomes still. Whatever occasion the mind becomes still in a meditator whose body is tranquil, who feels pleasure, on that occasion, the stillness, enlightenment factor, is aroused in them. They develop it and the development comes to fulfilment in them. They closely look on with equanimity at the mind that is still. On whatever occasion a meditator closely looks on with equanimity at the mind that is still, so it's still in just watching it. On that occasion, the equanimity enlightenment factor is arousing them, and they develop it, and by development, it comes to fulfilment. So, on whatever occasion a monkabba is contemplating uh, feelings, contemplating mind, contemplating mind objects, exactly the same, these seven enlightenment factors of mindfulness, investigation of states, the um, pleasure, energy. Um, uh, I missed one out. Well, I missed out. Go back to it here. Mindful, investigation, energy, rapture. Yeah, I didn't. Um, uh, s- s- stillness and equanimity. There's one missing, wasn't there? So no, that's it. Yeah. It's mindfulness, investigation of dhamma, uh, investigation, uh, it's, it's tranquility. Tranquility. Tranquility, pleasure, stillness, uh, equanimity, (laughs) So equanimity was the one. And then there, there we go, seven enlightenment factors. Now they call them enlightenment factors because they are the way to become enlightened. You've got to develop those things and also once you are enlightened you always have those. So they both describe the path and what happens. So. This is how the four foundations of mindfulness developed and cultivated fulfill the seven enlightenment factors. And how meditators do the seven enlightenment factors developed and cultivated fulfill true knowledge and deliverance, in other words, being an Awahat. Here, meditators, a medica- meditator develops the mindfulness enlightenment factor, uh, which is supported by seclusion. And it's not physical seclusion, it's seclusion from other people, but also secluded. From the five senses, secluded from the hindrances, dispassion and cessation and ripens in relinquishment. He develops the investigation of states, the energy, the rapture, tranquility, uh, stillness and equanimity, enlightenment factor. Each one of these is supported by seclusion. It's very hard to do these when you've got many, many things around you, many things to do. So this is why you have retreat centers, why you can sort of go into your meditation room in your house or meditation cupboard or something. Get secluded physically and then get secluded from your past and your future. Get secluded from your thoughts. This beautiful idea of stepping away from all this thing which often defines your world. So it's uh, supported by seclusion, dispassion or rather fading away, cessation, and we ripen in your letting go of things. Meditators, that is how the seven enlightenment factors developed and cultivated, fulfilled true knowledge and deliverance. That is what the Blessed One said. The monks were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. That's the Anapanasati Sutta. Please, I apologise for rushing the last bit, but we spent a lot of time on the the core of it, which was the real Anapanasati method. Are there any questions? Uh oh from overseas. Oh my goodness very good. use yeah. oh yeah that's good because that's nothing wrong with that but that's not quite what it means because grief of the world. That's this is what happens when you translate from Pali and you, you try and look for a word and it has all these other connotations which aren't really there in the original. I always say it's just sort of the same as you try and sol- try and translate, it rains cats and dogs to like a Malaysian. Think, what do you mean? <laughs> cats and dogs, they fall from the sky in Australia. <laughs> and it adds something which is not really there. And so it, 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 what it means is the five hindrances. they got covetousness for the world, it's loke abhija, is a synonym for the first hindrance. In maybe 40% of the time in the suttas, instead of karmachanda, which is the usual word for the five hindrances, they have loke abhija, which is what they have, um, covetousness for the world. And uh, the other one, um, loke abhija, no, it's not wayapada, they have other uh, grief. What's the word? Dhammanasa. And uh, that can sometimes u- be used as grief, but it is also a synonym. It's only in two places in the suttas, a synonym for the second hindrance of, wayap- of wayapada, ill will. So when I saw that, you know, I just reading the suttas in Pali, and they're not that hard to read, and I said, this is what it means, because there's synonyms where you have the whole list of five hindrances, Instead of the usual Kama Chanda, Wayapada, Tinamida, Uddhacha, Kukacha, and Wichikacha, uh, <laughs> uh, instead of those, the first two were changed to what they have here as grief and covetousness for the world. And if you look at the commentaries to the Satipatthana Sutta, they actually point that out. These are the, the monks in the time of the Buddha, they say grief and covetousness for the world mean the first two hindrances. And the way of Pali, you mentioned the first two. And all the other ones in the usual list are included. So, for example, you have the monks of Bodhinyana Monastery. So, you, you mentioned Ajahn Brahm Shujato, and that means all the monks, the first two. So, the first two of a list is a way in Pali of including the whole in a very usual common list. So, they say that. In all the commentaries, the, the Satipatthana Sutta and Mahasatipatthana Sutta, they always say, grief and, to the w- keep grief and covetousness for the world means the five hindrances. So that's you know, how traditionally this was always meant to be understood. But there's nothing wrong with that, You know, the grief for the world and stuff like that. If you want to meditate, you know, please put aside all of that. Mm-hmm. But if you want to actually do something, You're voting in the election. Please remember that what happens in the world. Any more questions from the floor before I do ones from overseas? Okay, from overseas, USA, Thailand, Thailand, and Poland. That's really nice. I have a medical condition. Always have significant pain, and because of this, I have never been able to experience the body disappearing. Despite being kind and gentle, loving to the pain. How do I get beyond this? Thank you. There was a man here years ago who had such chronic pain. that uh, he was one of about seven or eight people in Western Australia who were legally permitted to take any drug you no, know, any drug at all heroin, whatever, because the pain was so great. And he remember him telling me that uh, they could do, like MRI scan of the brain or something, and they could actually see, you, know, the parts which are being lit up say so the sort of pain you have is exactly the same as if you're having your arm cut off with a saw, without anaesthetic. He said no. And they, they had to give these, these descriptions so that he could tell his friends and relations exactly what he was feeling. Yeah, we all say oh, it really hurts, it hurts like hell, but you know what does that mean? You know, this was actually an objective way of seeing the degree of pain he was experiencing. And I remember him come, before we had this hall, it was the other hall, he came up to me once with a big smile and said, I've finally done it. I said, what have you done? He said, i finally got the machine to, to do a flat line. I saw the ECG. He said, no, that was easy. I did that weeks ago, the EEG. So he could actually meditate because of its extreme pain. He had no choice. He, he couldn't mess around. And he had incredible deep meditations. I don't mind saying about this man now, because he's dead, but many of you know Ron's story. I don't know, he told me that when he was in the British army, he had migraines, really bad migraines. And it was incredible pain. So what he did was find a dark place. And he, he didn't know what he was doing, he said he went so deep inside himself, that he couldn't feel any pain anymore. That's the way he overcame it. And he always told me, now he didn't have migraines anymore, He said, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> it was only the pain forced him to. So, sometimes the pain can be an obstacle, but it can also be a huge incentive to actually do this properly. Because every time you start thinking about the past or the future, even thought, you would experience enormous pain and desperation. So, just really do it properly. Be in the present moment. You know, don't even give an inch to the past or the future. Just let the thoughts disappear. Be still, because that's the only way out of the incredible pain. Yeah, it's a tough thing to do, but you've got a reason and incentive which other people don't. I know people do a lot of meditation when they get cancer and as soon as they're in remission, <laughs> they don't seem to do so much. <laughs> you can understand why sometimes the motivation to do things. It can be done. Personally, just having a, two or three weeks of was it scrub typhus, same as typhoid. You know, it aches all over the body, no, absolutely no energy whatsoever. But at least I've learned how to meditate so I can get into deep meditation and just the body totally disappear. It's wa- and it's to you it's just such a relief you know, from USA to be able to do this. It can be done but you've really got to focus and do it properly. So I say it can be done because I've done that and with great pain and just go right inside. And but you have to actually to go right inside it, don't be afraid of it, it takes courage. Go right inside, don't, don't move. Anyway, question two from Thailand. Some monks say that we have to know and follow where the breath starts, proceeds and ends. When I do that I find I'm controlling the breath, not watching the breath. Please comment. If you're worrying where it starts, proceeds and ends, there's too much time involved there. Too much past and future. You don't want to worry about where it starts, proceeds, and ends. You, you just know where it is or what it feels like right now. And there's a great simile of the saw from the Visuddhimagga. Uh, he said, a carpenter is sawing a piece of wood. And when you first start see sawing the piece of wood, you can see the beginning of the saw and the end of the saw. You see the whole piece of wood. But as you focus in, you can just see a th- three or four teeth on the saw, and maybe a centimeter of the wood just that point where it's touching the wood. And because you can only see three or four sore teeth, you don't know whether those teeth are the beginning of the sore or the end of the sore. So you know, beginning and end of stuff, you know maybe at the beginning of your meditation you can mess around with that, but just let that go as soon as you possibly can. That is not important. You really want to see the breath as it's happening right now. And to the point you don't know whether it's starting or finishing. And in fact there comes a time when you can't distinguish an in-breath and an out-breath. Just this moment of breath right now is all you know. and Because you've got no perception of past or future, you, you, you can't define whether that's in or out, or whether it's the middle or the end of an in-breath or an out-breath. It's just breath. That's an important thing to understand. And that's from the Rasudhi Last question from Poland. When the body disappears and only the breath is there, uh, can only remain in that state for a few minutes. How to make this stage last a bit longer? Number one, don't be afraid, because a lot of times people are afraid of the unknown. They think, ah, my body's disappeared, what's going to happen? Your body will be fine without you. Even to the point if you get into jhanas and you can't feel the body, and you're really worried, I can't feel, I won't know if something happens. In jhanas you are invulnerable, there's so many cases, in the suttas there was a monk who was meditating in the jungle and he was in jhanas and a man or two villagers, they saw him, they were collecting something in the forest and they saw this monk, they were Buddhist, they say we can't let this monk just be eaten by the jungle animals. They thought he was dead, because you know, in deep jhana you can't see any breath or anything. They thought this monk was dead, so they got some wood, <laughs> built a funeral pyre, put the monk on top and lit it. And once it was lit, they went off because they were busy. You can't hang around all day to watch the monk being burnt. So this is what happened, in jhana, and they think you're dead and they put you on a pile of wood. And the following morning, the monk came on arms round in the village. And the, the villagers were very impressed, not even his robe was burnt. Okay, now That's what it says in the, in the suttas. One of the monks I met when I was a young monk, as a monk, you meet all incredible people. You do have experiences and stories to tell anecdotes. I wish more monks would write books of the, the amazing things they've seen in their life. This was an Indonesian monk who told me he went off into the jungle in Java to meditate. He wasn't a monk yet. He went deep in the jungle and he told me he saw this star come into his mind. Classic Nimitta. And he said, the only words he said, he married the star. You know, He just became one with it. And when he came out, blissful experience. He noticed that the forest where he was, uh, had been meditating, was totally changed. He'd been there about six or seven days. It looked like there was a flood. He asked the villagers, yes, there was a flood. He'd been underwater, a few meters underwater for about three or four days. Didn't know a thing. Perfectly okay. When you're in jhanas, you are invulnerable. I don't know why, if you're, in if you're in Jhana and they think you're dead, say, I get in Jhanas, you think I'm dead, you tell me to bow an O'Day, funeral, and you put me in Karakata and put me in the, in the crematorium, in the box. Please don't do that. I'll be okay, but I feel for the poor guy at the crematorium who opens the oven. Hi, me again. <laughs> <laughs> Still perfectly alive. That will cause a bit of sensation. <laughs> so that's what happens. So you don't have to be afraid, okay? You're perfectly safe. You couldn't be more safe. And I mentioned that if there's ever a tsunami, get into jhana quickly, then you won't get drowned. If there's a meteor coming from outer space, heading straight for Perth, jhana quickly, and then everything else blows up. When you come out, you know, no Buddhist society left, but you're okay. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, I'm going off a bit here. So, number one, fear. Okay, nothing to fear. You're okay. You're going to be fine. And uh, number two is joy. Develop lots of joy. Joy is an antidote to fear. So, whenever I go and give public speaks, I enjoy myself. I tell a few jokes. That joy takes away all fear of public speaking. So, when if you have only the breath is there, make it a delightful breath. Develop the piti sukha, the rapture and pleasure along with the breath. If that comes up, then you'll stay a long time. Without the pleasure and joy, it's boring and the mind will go after something else. So don't be afraid of the pleasure of meditation. Develop it, it's important and you'll stay there a long time. OK, any other questions before we finish off? OK, you've got an extra half an hour today, 5 o'clock, so well done. So we've Now and I'm going to dedicate this today. Dedicate it to one of the great so, supporters of our, of our Buddhist society, Ainsley. 80th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so now we do the Arahang. Uh, yeah, we'll just do Arahang here. Don't need to bow yet. I should bow, yeah. Okay, we'll go and do the bowing. <laughs> here we go. Avahang sama sambudo bagawa budang bagawantang abiwa Bhagavata suakato bagawa namasami Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Sanghang Namami